Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks on today's show, Disney on the Mountain, Walt the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort That Never Was by Catherine Mayer and Greg Glasgow. Ron, how's it going? Going great, Ed. I'm so looking forward to this. I really enjoyed this book. But before we get into it, another shout out. Last week, we did Paul O'Byrne, his birthday. Today is my brother's birthday, Ken Baker. So, uh, okay. Yes. Well, peace out. Peace and courage to to to, uh, to to Ken and 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 your family on that. So I know that was a tough situation a couple of years ago. So, but we have uh, fun stuff to talk about. And it was your brother Ken that bought you a brick at Disneyland. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. I've got a commemorative brick outside of Disneyland. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but let's get to our, our topic at hand, which again is Disney on the Mountain, Walt, the environmentalist and the ski resort that never was. Uh, I'll read him in here. Catherine Mayer is a Denver based writer and journalist whose work has appeared in numerous publications, including Health Observer, Insider and Pop Sugar. She primarily writes about business covering workplace health and benefit strategies and has appeared on radio, TV and podcasts as an industry expert. Greg Glasgow is a longtime writer and journalist for numerous magazines and newspapers in Colorado and elsewhere, including the Denver Post, 5280, I think that's how you say it, and the Boulder Daily Camera, where he worked for 10 years as an arts and entertainment reporter and editor. Welcome to the to the Soul of Enterprise, guys. Thanks so much for having us. We're so excited to talk with you. And happy birthday to Ken. <laughs> yes. Get that out of the way. This is important. There you go. Well, we when we have authors on, we always ask the first question uh, the same, which is basically, tell us what your book is about. <laughs> Our book is about a ski resort that Walt Disney and the Disney Company attempted to build in California starting in 1965. Um, and basically the, the longtime battle with environmentalists that went on for about... 13 more years and went to the Supreme Court and eventually sort of, spoiler alert, uh, resulted in the resort not being built. So it's just a, a story that involves a lot of Disney history, a lot of environmental history, um, some environmental law history, and hopefully um, it's all tied together in a very interesting and readable way. And there's so many fun characters in this book. Of course, Walt Disney, obviously a character in and of himself. But I want to ask about some of the, let's call them the, the minor characters as they evolved. Uh, tell me about Willie Schaffler. Yes, Willie Schaffler is, he was essentially Walt Disney's partner on this project. So he has a crazy interesting background. He basically escaped. He was German born. He escaped Nazi rule. Uh, went to the U.S. with pretty much no money except for a few pairs of skis, as we write. And he more or less created a lot of famous ski slopes and runs all throughout 
the U.S. throughout uh, multiple years, especially in Colorado, which is where he he was based for many years. He was he then became a very famous head ski coach at the University of Denver. Um, won won many many championships over the years, so he became pretty famous in the the ski circle. And in 1960, he held a pretty big role, basically developing again those ski runs for the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California. And that is where he met Walt Disney. And the two became fast friends and basically started kind of talking together about, is there something we could do together? Walt had this idea kind of behind the scenes for a while about building this potential ski resort. And more more than a ski resort, it was really going to be this big family-friendly vacation destination. And looked to his friend, Willie Schaeffler, to basically help him out and find the perfect spot in developing it. And where did he find? He found this area, Mineral King, California, um, near sort of Fresno and Bakersfield up in the Sierra Nevada, kind of right on the edge of Sequoia National Park. And this was an area that Walt had actually visited a couple of times. He was familiar with it. And then through a series of various events that we talk about in the book, the Forest Service actually put this area up for bid. This was an area that they wanted someone to come in and develop a ski resort there. So Walt Disney was one of six bidders um, on this property that they would have gotten a 30-year lease to develop this resort. And you know, they, Disney won the bid and they started their planning process, but really before anything could get off the ground, Walt Disney died about a year after they won the bid for this. And then this environmental battle began. So, you know, nothing really ever got off the ground there, but that was where they were going to build it when they had the plan to do so. And I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but I think you quote it two or three times in the book. You say when Walt was was really uh, encapsulated by the beauty of this place, he said he wanted to keep it exactly as it was. And well, I guess in the end, it worked out that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but I want to back up a little bit in the story and some of, again, these other minor characters who were just was fascinating. What about Bob Hicks and John Harper? Uh, yeah, so Bob Hicks was sort of Disney's like man on the ground for some of these things. He had helped kind of scout out some of the locations for Disneyland originally in the 1950s. And he had actually grown up in this area right around where Mineral King was. So he was kind of familiar with it. And when Walt was looking to, you know, potentially develop this area, being the smart businessman that he was, he sent Bob Hicks into this area to kind of start buying up land anonymously. So really under sort of dummy corporation names, because, um, you know, he didn't want people necessarily to get wind of there's going to be a Disney development here, prices go up, that kind of thing. And he has sort of learned a lesson with Disneyland and that he didn't really buy any of the area outside of where the park was. And that got developed by tons of other people with hotels and restaurants and gift shops and all these things. And Walt always kind of kicked himself for not, you know, owning all that area too. So that was his plan in Mineral King was to own a lot of the land around it. And then as far as John Harper, he was sort of the first member of the Sierra Club, the first environmentalist to kind of start to spur this battle he got he loves um the mineral king area he went up there a lot and he kind of got wind early that there's these rumors going through the valley that walt disney was going to be putting a ski resort in there potentially trying to build a monorail line up the mountain and he was the first to kind of sound the alarm of you know 
we can't let this happen. You know, look at what happened with Disneyland. We can't let this area get wildly developed and people opening more hotels and gift shops and that kind of thing. So that, yeah, they both played big roles in the story and it was kind of fun to try to bring them to life some through the, the writing. And and let's just say that it, that Walt was many things, but he was not a cryptologist. Uh, what was the what was the fictitious name of the company that they that he came up with? The genius name, <laughs> impossible to crack. No one would have figured out. It was Rhett Law, <laughs> so Walter spelled backward. Wow, yeah, it is pretty funny. <laughs> no one would have ever figured this no out. No one would ever figure that one out. Yeah. That is. Uh, <laughs> Um, but so you and we're, we're we're talking about the Sierra Club and and John Harper's involvement. Uh, there was even an internal dispute though in the Sierra Club uh, about this. I mean, at first, even some of them were not necessarily opposed to it completely, right? Exactly. So that was that was a lot of drama. Really, was because there was a lot of internal debate over this and. Weirdly enough, the Sierra Club years before actually recommended this area in California, Mineral King, to be developed for skiing. So that was a lot of why it was pretty contentious is because, you know, a lot of them were saying, like, let's not do this. And then they said, but we already said (laughs) they could develop it. They could develop it. But what, what it was, was it was more of a compromise because Years back, there was another area um, in San Gorgonia in California as well that people were looking and the government was looking to develop for skiing. And the Sierra Club was adamantly against that. So it was more or less a compromise years ago in saying, hey, here's another area to develop. But then, of course, I mean, this was how many years later, you know, 15, something like that, 20 years later. And the group, the club had really changed a lot in that time. You know, there was before that the group had really gotten together and went on hikes and, you know, did a lot of outdoor activities, but then we're talking about the 1960s. So there's quite a bit of activism at this time. And so there's a lot of that development conversation. Let's not develop all these areas. Let's keep some of this pristine. And so that's a lot of what what tied into it. So the group was really, really torn. And there was actually a big heated meeting at one point in, was it 1965, I think. And we write about that in the book. And it's quite the contentious meeting where a lot of its big members and leaders were really arguing about this. Well, one of the many ironies in this r- relates to that is that in in those fifteen years or so since the Sierra Club had said let's let's you know a- allow the development here, a movie was released that some of these newer members of the Sierra Club watched and were profoundly affected by. So, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I assume you're referring to Bambi. Yes, I am. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that is a, that's a huge irony. So, yeah, Bambi was you know sort of this galvanizing thing for a lot of these at that point, kids in the theater who were seeing these shocking scenes of, you know, the hunters are setting the forest ablaze and they're, you know, killing Bambi's mom, sorry to say. And it's, you know- Spoiler alert. And then in addition to Bambi, Walt had this whole series of wildlife documentaries called The True Life Adventures that came out around the same time. And, you know, a lot of these kids are watching these in school or at the theater or on, you know, the wonderful world of Disney show. And that really spurred a lot of these kids to grow up and become environmentalists. And then sort of, like you said, and then they turn around and 
oppose this development. It's interesting to note that Walt actually received like an honorary lifetime membership from the Sierra Club back in the 50s as well, which is another part of this you know, whole story is that, you know, part of him didn't want to offend the Sierra Club, which is why he didn't actually go to the San Gorgonio area that Catherine was talking about. But yeah, that was definitely an interesting kind of twist that, that you know, the group that opposed this the most was the thing that he helped to create. Yeah. And was a member, an honorary member of. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> really like a... irony is in this whole story, which is insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, we are up against our break. Want to remind those of you listening that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We do have a Patreon channel where you can listen to the show without commercial interruption, as well as our bonus episodes that we do each week. You can get that at patreon.com slash TSOE. And at a certain level, you can get a shout out like Daniel Cook did at webhq.uk hassle-free websites that deliver strong results. Check them out. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Ron, we talk a lot about business opportunities. Well, now a great one has become our sponsor, bookskeepingfranchise.com, bookskeeping with an X. That's right, Ed. If you are interested in becoming part of the $4.2 billion bookkeeping industry for a franchise fee of just under $20,000, visit www.bookskeepingfranchise.com. Bookskeeping comes with full training, plus marketing and technical support, and even staffing. Visit the website or call 855 935 2669. Franchise opportunity not available in all states. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everyone. We're here with Catherine Mayer and Greg Glasgow, and we're talking about their new book just released, I think, last week, Disneyland on the Mountain. And you guys, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I was hooked on the title, but once I got into it, I just couldn't put it down. I have to ask, what got you interested in this Mineral King topic? Is, are you it, Disney files or just? <laughs> yes, Disney files, I would say. It's an interesting story. So yeah, Catherine is a, is a Disney file, grew up going to the parks with her family and that kind of thing. And then she sort of indoctrinated me once we <laughs> got together and we both, you know, really enjoyed with Disney, the history aspect. I mean, there's so much out there that they, you know, is available and they promote and that kind of thing. And we actually, in 2018, we visited the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. And it was there, they had a giant timeline of Walt's life. And there was one little mention about, you know, 1965, Walt won the rights to build this ski resort with his partner, Willie Schaeffler, who we talked about in the first segment. And Willie Schaeffler was, again, the ski coach at the University of Denver at that time. And Catherine actually graduated from University of Denver and we met working there. So we immediately perked up our ears at this mention of a guy that we, whose name we had heard many times was sort of famous in University of Denver lore. And that was really what got us interested in looking into this. And then of course, once we realized it was this giant story that involved the Sierra Club and a Supreme Court case and all these other things, we just thought it was just really interesting Disney story that as far as we could tell really hadn't been completely told before. So yeah, no, you and you really did a great job telling it because I mean any Disney, uh, especially on his life that you you read in a book or you know, biography of Walt or you watch the Disney movies, they always talk about his last three projects before he died, the Florida project and what it was it, Cal Arts mm -hmm. and this Mineral King. And I knew about Mineral King, but I didn't know the rest of the story. And you guys really filled that in well. So on Mineral King, and I, I'm ashamed to say this, I'm a native Californian, born and raised. I've never been to Mineral King. Uh, I think if Disney had developed his plans, I think I would have gone there at some yeah. point in the summer because I'm not a skier. But <laughs> tell us about Mineral King. I mean, its origins and, and it was quite a little boomtown. Back it was. So, you know, as you might guess from the name, this was sort of part of the gold rush and the mineral rush back in the 1800s it was um, i think silver was sort of the first thing to be discovered in that area and there was a big yeah a mining boom and there was a little town that was created with you know uh, breweries and restaurants and a hotel and all these sorts of things you'd have in a town like that and you know mining operations that kind of thing and really it never turned out to be as rich of an area as they thought it was going to be so it was sort of abandoned and then the actually the 1906 san francisco earthquake happened which kind of destroyed a lot of the buildings that were there and mm -hmm. so it's sort of at that point was not much but then a lot of the miners and the people that had spent time there remembered it as being so beautiful that they started to come back just as for vacations in the summertime and it slowly turned into this little resort kind of town and there were some cabins and things built there and really by the time 1965 when this project was being looked at there was a little cabin community there of about 65 cabins there was like a general store and maybe a little cafe but the road to go up there when you mentioned going up there in the summer times that's a big part of this story is that there's just this really torturous winding road that took like so long to get up that they would have really had to build a brand new almost highway 
to get in there to bring in the kind of traffic they were talking about, which would have gone through Sequoia National Park. But um, yeah, so Mineral King, you know, it was always kind of, it was right on the edge of Sequoia National Park, really left out of the park because of these mining operations. When they first drew the boundaries, they really could have included it, but it had, you know, the remnants of these mining operations. There were still some active mining claims. So it kind of stayed as this little, as we say, this little thumb on the, on the bottom of the map there of, of the park. And it's subject to avalanches, isn't it? Because there wasn't there one in 1880 that kind of drove people away. And then there was one when Walt was figuring his plans to build it. Yeah, there was one, right? Yeah, there was one back in the 1800s, as you said, and then which knocked a lot of stuff out. And then another, right, as they were, <laughs> as Disney was saying, we know about avalanches. We've studied them there. We know we can, and it even said something like, we can control the snow there and we can make it move when it wants to move. And then right as they were sort of submitting their final plans to the Forest Service in 69, there was this kind of, unfortunately, a deadly avalanche that came down. There were some Disney uh, snow researchers that sort of lived in this area in the wintertime to study the snowfall and capacity, that kind of thing. And one of their friends that had been up there with them to visit was actually killed by this avalanche. So it was really this unfortunate timing and, you know, a lot of the anti-development people sort of seized on this to say look hey we told you that this area is not as safe as you think it is and you know maybe you should rethink whether or not you really want to put a ski resort here mm-hmm. right you know the the other character that you talk about in the book and i ran across this guy several times and read his book a couple years ago harrison buzz price the economist that picked the locations for disneyland and disney world um he did a report on on Mineral King projecting, you know, the size of the population, you know, the visitors and all that. But he cited, and you've got this wonderful site, you, he cited in his report, a Senate subcommittee report that predicted Americans would be working just 14 hours per week in the year 2000. Got that a bit wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, now but we're mad. His, at, now we're all mad at him because yeah. it didn't come true. <laughs> but but that was his supposition that there would be more visitors in the summer yeah. than in winter. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's super important to mention. And you had mentioned you're not a skier. I mean, a lot of people are not. We're actually. I don't even know if I should say this publicly. We live in Colorado. We are not skiers. <laughs> we wrote about. I know. <laughs> shock and awe value here um but you know they that was a big thing was that at the time when they were looking to develop this while as usual ahead of his time thinking skiing at the day of the day was really athletic type people it was not family friendly at all you're not going up there with your family you're not staying in newer overnight you're not doing anything like that it's very athletic pretty dangerous probably and So he's him and Buzz Price, you just mentioned, they're thinking, you know, how could we capitalize on this? Let's create something that isn't, you know, it is a quote unquote ski resort, but it's much more than that. And that's actually what we think of for a lot of these successful ski resorts of the day. You know, we'll go up to Vail or something like that here in Colorado and we'll do other activities. We like to see what it's like in the summer months and, and Disney and Buzz Price smartly realized that this was going to, they actually said that the summer and warmer months were actually going to be a bigger draw for, for people and for, yeah. So they were tailoring this to non non skiers, which was 
very, very smart. Really was that, that they're not family friendly insight of Walt reminds me of his insight about amusement parks. You know, they're not, they're not the kids and the adults can't play together. Um, Talk about uh, Lyndon Johnson and his USDA secretary, Orville Freeman, because they got involved in this too. And there's so many weird things about this because here's, here's Johnson awarding Walt the presidential medal of freedom, free, uh, freedom in 1965. And he says he's, he wore the gold water lapel uh, yeah. pin under his lapel, which I've read in other places as well. So I think that's a true story, but talk about how the, how the federal government all of a sudden got involved in this thing. Yeah. So yeah, the Goldwater thing, we've seen that a few places. <laughs> We're waiting to it's true. It's terrible. Um, the, um, yeah. So really what happened was, like we said, in 1965, Walt won, or he at first placed his bid, right, to develop this area that the foresters had put up for bid. And there was six bidders total. Walt was one. And really the only other one that sort of had a serious bid, and there's all these guest stars in our book. <laughs> One of whom is a guy named Robert Brandt, who was actually the husband of Janet Lee, the actress from Psycho and some of these other films. So he was a stockbroker in California, and he was really looking to get into the ski business. And he's actually the guy that originally had kind of gone to the Forest Service and said, hey, you know, what about putting this area up for bid? I think it'd make a great ski resort. And so essentially what happened in the months following this bid process, which was in August of 65, is both of these guys were so connected politically. Brandt was, you know, pretty in tight with the Johnson campaign, and Walt was, you know, friends with, with Governor Reagan and knew a bunch of other people. So essentially, the local, you know, forestry and park officials in California said, "We're going to sort of <laughs> kick this up the ladder a little bit because basically, whatever we, decision we make, someone's probably going to just sort of appeal it up anyway." So, <laughs> so that's when they, yeah, they went to Orville Freeman, who was the um, agriculture secretary and said you know and he actually said i want to get involved and i want to help make this decision so he put a task force together to look at the bids walt and brant each made separate trips to dc to kind of show off their plans and talk through what they were going to do and then in the end really people thought that brant sort of had it in the bag because people in california knew him as this kind of political mover and shaker but then you know for whatever reason i think they just thought that disney had obviously more experience doing projects like this and that that's who ultimately won the bid to do this much to robert brant's uh chagrin he was pretty upset about the fact that he didn't win the bid to do it yeah it's wild ronald reagan of course supported the development right and course he opened disneyland on the day that they televised the opening of he was one of the announcers it's there's just so many weird things going on um but to also talk and we've only got a couple minutes but um what about stuart yudal and gene coke they turned out to be pretty big obstacles to this didn't they yeah so stuart yudal was the secretary of the interior so he especially was really opposed to this road that was going to be built so that was his big uh, point of opposition and so he this really became a calling card for him as far as you know we're not going to let this happen and uh jean coke was a great character she was a woman who actually had a cabin in mineral king so there were certainly not very many of 
those people who are around. So it was really interesting to, to find out about her, but she led a lot of this opposition. She held protests and, and then she was a woman also in the sixties, which was a fun, you know, a fun thing to, to write about certainly. And, and to kind of get the, the women's rights movement in there. And of course the environmental movement, but she was, she was fantastic. And we're, we're really excited for people to, to read, read all about her. Yeah. She wore the 59 pin. Yes. <laughs> 59 cents on the dollar. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, you guys, this is wonderful. And again, the book is Disneyland on the mountain. Can't recommend it highly enough. And we'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, you can send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. Do check out Patreon where you can get access to our bonus shows and other content. That is at patreon.com slash TSOE. And of course that is sponsored by 90 Minds. Find a mind at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is Disney on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort That Never Was by Catherine Mayer and Greg Glasgow, and we are talking to them today. And you were just talking in the last segment with Ron about, you know, the kid-friendly nature aspect. Of just a quick personal story. I have, I'm not a skier. I've only been skiing like three times in my life. But I do have a vague recollection of being in like the sixth grade and going with my dad to Hunter Mountain in New York. Um, and I can tell you for certain that it was not family friendly because at a certain point we got sh- uh, take, taken out of the lodge because they started showing stag films. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. So, 
Walt was on to something where we needed we needed with the kid entertainment. So talk a little bit more about that and the relationship of a certain, you know, set of bears that, you know, made it. <laughs> yeah. No, no spoilers here. No. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So it was yeah, he was extremely smart about this. This was going to be, of course, skiing like we're talking about, but it was going to also have sledding and tobogganing and ice skating and that kind of thing in the the winter months. And it was going to also have people could go camping and biking and walking around, going these wilderness hikes and talks and learn about nature, which was also going to be a big component of this. That was really important to Walt that people would go see this area and then go learn about, you know, what animals are there, what plants are there, how does this look? There was going to be a movie theater that of course would play Disney films. And there was going to be a lot of shopping, a lot of different restaurants. It was also going to have, you know, quite a few places to stay, even at the beginning, it was going to have this. So I can't imagine maybe what it would have turned into later, probably, you know, quite a few different other, you know, places to stay and hotels and things like that. But he was also smart about let's make this for different economic levels too, and make sure that people can afford it. And, you know, you can have a nicer place to stay here or a cheaper place and, and, you know, bring more people to the mountain. And, one of the things he did, he kept saying, we mentioned, you know, this was important to him. He didn't want this to be a quote unquote Disneyland. And, but he he did think, you know, we got to have something kind of fun, some kind of a little Disney magic. So, so he did start to basically create this show that was going to have audio animatronic bears because bears are in the mountains. Of course, they were going to be playing music and singing and doing you know, playing instruments and things like that. And that later then became the the famous country bear jamboree that made its way into Walt Disney World and later Disneyland as well. So so they eventually put that into the parks when this was they weren't sure if this was going to shake out or not. Yeah. And, and there are other some legacies that we'll uh, perhaps ask you about later. But I want to, to jump back a little get get toward the end of the story. Something that I learned is uh, that uh, and we were talking about birthdays. Disney went into the hospital on November 2nd, 1966, which was my birthday. That's the oh, wow. day I was born. So it's like oh a, a yeah. weird connection point there. But um, it, it, he, he of course, uh, passes away in December of that year, very after a very you know brief illness, he, although they thought that he or hit and his brother specifically. And that's who I wanted to ask about this. I'll call ma- major character here is Roy Disney and the struggle that he really brought himself through. I think think he's one of the tragic figures in this. Yeah. Yeah. He, he is. It's such an interesting situation. And again, when we were first writing about this, you know, Oh, Walt Disney died during this. I mean, this is obviously very momentous occasion for the Disney company. And when he did pass away, it was all pretty sudden, obviously very tragic. And there was no really secession plan in place, which is, you know, I mean, if you think about a company now that would have never happened, most likely, though, I guess we're seeing the Iger and <laughs> so maybe I take that back. Um, <laughs> but but so Roy Disney, who is Walt's older brother, steps in and he doesn't really want this. You know, he's obviously he's very smart. He's a great businessman, but he likes being more or less in the shadows. Walt's kind of the gregarious figure that is the face of the company. He loves being on TV. He loves chatting with people. Roy isn't really like that, but he, you know, he knows he needs to do this and he, and he does it. And one of the first things that he does is 
is put out a statement saying he knows this is a great tragedy for everybody, but he wants to make sure that he basically keeps Walt's legacy alive. And he really wants to do what Walt wanted and what Walt really cared about was the Florida project and he, and CalArts. And he certainly cared a lot about mineral cane and Roy wasn't really sure exactly about mineral cane. He wasn't really, he didn't really understand the ski resort business. He, he wasn't really sure that that was the right move for the Disney company, but he, he made it his priority to, to try to do that for his brother. Well, you're reading the book and doing research for, for the interview. I, I went down the the hole of watching some, you know, stuff on on uh, a channel called Defunct Land. I don't know if you've come across this on on uh, YouTube, uh, which talks a, a lot about like defunct old uh, and they, and there is an episode on on Mineral King, but. Oh, the the impact of uh, on Epcot as well is again a Roy Disney thing. I mean, Epcot was community of tomorrow, and it was really a full community. Roy didn't want any part of that. He's like, let's just stick to the knitting. Let's just do amusement parks, right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Roy. I mean, it's, in terms of Mineral King and probably Epcot too. I mean, one of our interview sources that we found said that you know Roy told him early on, like Disney is in the movie business and the amusement park business. We're not really in the skiing business. And, you know, he probably didn't necessarily want to tackle the logistics of trying to build a community of tomorrow and, you know, whatever they would have to do to get people to live there and all that kind of thing. So, you know, it, Walt had these grand visions, right? I mean, that's what was really cool about him. And, you know, it had Walt lived, Epcot may have well turned out to be what he thought it was going to be. But, you know, what it turned out to be is also pretty cool. So, you know, we got to give some props to the people that, that came after to do that. But, yeah, certainly was, you know. Walt's vision was quite different from what it turned out to be. As we wind toward the sort of end of the story, but I won't give, give it all away. There's yet another irony, and that is the governor who gets the, the some of the laws changed in California to end this project is the son of the governor who was there at the beginning. So talk a little bit about Pat and Jerry Brown. Yeah. So Pat Brown was, you know, was the governor back when this was all happening. And our book actually begins sort of on the mountainside in Mineral King with Walt at really what would turn out to be his final big press conference with Pat Brown. Pat Brown saying, hey, we've just talked, we're working with the federal government. We're going to get, you know, $20 million to go in and improve this road. This is all systems go on the Mineral King Resort. It's going to be great. And then, of course, you know, Walt dies about a month or two later, and it all starts to break down. And then when Jerry Brown becomes governor in California, you know, in the 70s, years later, he starts to put in place some of these other environmental laws that, you know, add to the the stew of environmental legislations and, and tie-ups and things like that, that really, you know, spelled the end of this resort over this kind of long battle and long period of time. And it's yeah, really interesting that and then if it proceeds into the Supreme Court battle and I'll I'll, I'll let the readers uh, to talk or maybe Ron will ask about that. But one thing I, I didn't see and maybe I just missed it. Um, what happened to the 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 ret law owned land? Did you did you ever find that? Because they did purchase a certain amount of land. Right. So I wonder, wonder what ultimately happened to that. 
As far as we know, Disney still does own some land up there. We're not sure exactly how much. And I mean, none of it ever was like developed or anything. So that is something we never really discovered exactly what had happened, if that's been leased out to other people or what happened there. But we know that Disney does still own something, something up in that area. But yeah, didn't get the full details on that. Yeah, well, Dis- Disney does tend to play the long game, so you never yeah, right. know. <laughs> never know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, speaking of long game, and uh, we talked a little bit about it with the with the the bears, the, the jamboree. But what what were some of the other impacts that the ideas from Mineral King left on the D- Disney legacy? I think a lot of it is really how they look at certain land and also just kind of theming in a lot of ways. This was what was really interesting about this was obviously because there was so much opposition, they were, it seemed, it seems to us like later, they certainly became a lot more cognizant of, you know, how can we not let this happen again? And, you know, for instance, in Alani, when they, the, the resort they have in Hawaii, they basically got a lot of like Hawaiian councils. They talked to people about making this area when they were building it be more a symbol of what that land and the area is around it rather than let's just bring quote unquote like a Disney type thing and like plop it in this area and have everyone be pretty mad about it, be pretty mad about it more or less. And they were trying to do that in Mineral King, but obviously a lot of that messaging kind of got you know, misconstrued and, 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 well, and he he made a lot of efforts to say that he was going to hide the traffic, right? I mean, there yeah, was the, really you is. weren't going to see the cars, you weren't going to be able to see it from certain areas, so that you wouldn't wouldn't even notice what was going on. So, I mean, I, and it, in a way, it was it kind of he he was he was working with him at least at the time. Oh, he really was. I mean, and again, I think that was really ahead of his time because he announced a lot of what he wanted to do before a lot of this opposition was really at the fever pitch that it then turned into, you know, he said no cars, essentially he wanted to keep this really beautiful. He wanted to have people again, be aware of this area. So, um, but they really kind of kept that momentum later as a company, which is, which is really interesting to see how they develop. Well, Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home, but I want to ask my final question. And that is to share with you a quote that I came across yesterday in the wall street journal and this is the quote it's you aren't going to come in in from skiing and go sit down at the four seasons in front of a fireplace with a 32 dollars cocktail uh here we go to a bar and they slide a margarita or plastic cup at me it's much more casual and this is a quote from uh, gala Pencamp, who owns a second home in dregs idaho a tiny community that some residents worry will become the next uber Lux mountain spot like jackson uh, uh, wyoming and park city utah so it continues, my friend. Yeah, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So you, you, th- you, this, you, you guys are onto something. This is not going to go away. You have a lasting legacy on this. But I really wanted to thank you for your book and sharing it with the world. We hope that a, a bunch of copies get sold because of the, this and other interviews that you're doing. But right now, we want Ron to remind our listeners that can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com website again is the soul of enterprise show notes previous uh, uh, to previous shows and upcoming shows but right now a word from our sponsor and my employer sage (laughs) 
Little Birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Catherine Mayer and Greg Glasgow, and they're the authors of Disneyland on the Mountain. And you guys, I do, you know, you're talking about Roy Disney and how he had doubts about Mineral King. And you, you've got a great, you tell a great story in the book about the first national bank president who, who asked Walt, what would happen if you got hit by a bus? And he said, absolutely nothing. My brother Roy runs this company. I just piddle around. <laughs> That's got to be one of my favorite Disney quotes of all time, right? Disney lines. Um, I do want to get into the lawsuit because I found this fascinating. First, the the debate between David Brower of the Sierra Club and Ansel Adams, the famous photographer, right? Um, they they ended up filing the lawsuit in 1968, one of the first that the Sierra Club has ever filed, you say, but they didn't sue Disney because that would be like suing motherhood and apple pie. Who'd they <laughs> yeah. sue? Who'd they sue? Isn't that so interesting? So they sued the U.S. government and basically a lot of the agencies um, that were a part of it. And that was extremely deliberate. And again, so fascinating to us that they did not sue Disney. There was a lot of conversation about it. You know, should we should we do this? We spoke a lot to someone named Mike McCloskey, who was the, then the mm. leader of the Sierra Club, um, who's still living. We spoke to him many times for this book. He, he's fantastic. But, you know, he did talk about this. He said they didn't want to do this. This does Disney even then was a very beloved company. So they certainly didn't want, they thought that they would be, you know, more or less dead in the water if they decided to sue Disney because, you know, people would kind of rally behind this very beloved company that, that brought 
Mickey Mouse and and Disneyland and and that was very very deliberate of them not to not to bring them up. Of course, the optics didn't look great for Disney. This is their development, so they more or less kind of had to defend it as if they were sued. But but it was the U.S. government that they that they brought the lawsuit for. And 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 I guess as most cases do, they they check standing first, and the first judge actually ruled that Sierra Club had legal standing, didn't he? He did. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, they sort of were motivated a little bit by another case in New York, uh, Storm King Mountain case, where there was a group of citizens along this really scenic area of the Hudson River who, in a similar way, had sued to stop this like hydroelectric plant from being built there. And an appeals court um, upheld that ruling and said, yeah, they do have the standing to bring this sort of simply as stewards of the environment kind of thing or as appreciators of of nature and that's sort of where the sierra club saw some inspiration like well hey maybe we could do the same thing and they looked at it and they you know they it's interesting how they did their case i mean they could have really and they knew this from the beginning they could have gone in and said we're the sierra club you know we spend a lot of time in this area our activities would really be hurt by this. Our membership would be hurt by this development coming in. But they really chose to file the lawsuit really purely based on this is going to wreck the aesthetic beauty of this area. This road is going to cut yeah. through the park and that kind of thing. And they sort of deliberately were almost doing this as a as a test case to see, like, will the courts think that we have the standing to bring this purely as protectors of the natural beauty of these areas. And that was a very interesting and again, kind of deliberate choice. And after that judge ruled that Sierra Club did have standing, the DOJ filed an appeal against that ruling. And then what happens? Well, yeah, so the DOJ files the appeal, the appellate court basically looks at the Sierra Club's case and and says you don't have standing actually to bring this and they sort of sort of were sort of mean about some of the things they said about this road like we find it hard to believe that you would be in favor of this like terrible primitive road that's going in there now but you wouldn't be in favor of a better road that's going to follow more or less the same track and blah 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 and the Sierra Club was sort of um, astounded by this in a way. I mean, they had seen the winds of change in the first Earth Day. It just happened in 1970, and they really had seen their membership grow. And they kind of thought that they were on the right side of, of history at that point, and that this would be, you know, the original um, ruling would be upheld, but it wasn't. And so they appealed to the Supreme Court. And at that at that point, I think it was something like around five percent of all cases that were appealed to Supreme Court they actually agreed to hear. So they knew it was kind of a long shot, but they also knew that there was kind of growing interest in this environmental law and that maybe their chances were better than some other cases. And then, yeah, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. And and of course, one of the judge, judges used to be a Sierra Club member. Is that right, William Douglas? Yep. Another another one of those kind of ironies of the book or these weird yeah. connections of things is, yeah, he was a Sierra Club director at one point, Sierra Club member, and he had actually given up his membership because he said, I think there's going to be a big environmental case that's going to come down the line here, you know, very soon. And I really want to be part of it because he was a big environmentalist of himself. He led a couple of even some protests and things back like in the 50s. And so he really wanted to be part of the Supreme Court that heard a case like this. So he had actually given up his membership in the club about a year or so earlier for that reason 
Oh, interesting. And I know he wrote that he he believed that trees and other natural beauty should have standing through human intermediaries to sue, didn't he? Yeah. And that was a really famous thing that came out of this case was that that whole idea of do trees have standing? And because the Sierra Club or the Supreme Court had ruled actually not in favor of the Sierra Club. And there's a lot that goes into this. And and certainly people will read all about this. But but this famous dissent that he wrote about do trees have standing and it became really this thing that we still talk about today. You know, does nature have its own right to do mountains and beautiful areas? And and that's something we obviously still talk about to this day. Yeah, for sure. Who's and who speaks for them, right? And who speaks for them, I mean, exactly. Yeah, because government owns a lot of it, a lot of it. Um, and then through all this, all this is going on, and Disney starts looking at an alternative location. Uh, Independence Lake uh, near Lake Tahoe up in the Sierra Nevadas. I've uh, never been there either, but um, that kind of fell through. And then they went back to Mineral King, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. So they started looking at when they did look at this other area in Independence Lake, California, they basically made it clear, you know, we're not giving up on Mineral King. Like this might be something in addition. Who knows if that's true or not? We're not. It's. I don't know if they would have done both. We we have no way of knowing. But at the time they said that they they weren't giving up on Mineral King, but they they were frustrated. They were obviously they were entangled in this big legal battle. They didn't know, you know, what what was exactly going to happen and even after the Supreme Court ruled, the protest continued. It actually intensified in a lot of in a lot of ways. So they thought, okay, let's wash our hands, let's try somewhere else. But more or less the same kind of thing happened. Um, and it was kind of complicated as to who owned the land as well, because it was privately owned, but then some of it was owned by the forest. It was Mm -hmm. national forest land as well. So it was, it was pretty complicated at the time as well. Um, but then, yeah. So, so for many years, they basically looked at two different areas, essentially just trying to make this happen really in honor of Walt. Right. Right. And then, depending on your view, I guess the hero or the villain of the story is John Krebs from Fresno. Yeah, interesting character. What did yeah, he do? He was an interesting guy. That yeah, he had come into office, been elected representative there after sort of serving in different smaller political capacities, and he had sort of known about this controversy for a while. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that this was you know, 10 years at least after Disney had first won the right to do this and there was still controversy going on and that really it was even still on the table. But he actually worked with the Sierra Club early on for their kind of thoughts on on what this could be. And he listened to a lot of constituents and he basically, you know, there had been some other attempts to create legislation to put this area in Sequoia National Park, but he was kind of the first to really be successful in doing so. And he lost his re-election because of it, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So he got what he wanted. This is, you know, that's how the story ends. Mineral King ended up becoming in Sequoia National Park. But yeah, John Krebs, unfortunately, lost lost the next election because of it. Because people were pretty upset. we're, We're down to about 30 seconds. But I have to ask you guys, you end the book by saying, you know, Mineral King wasn't obviously developed by Disney. And whether or not that's a good thing is up to each individual if that's for the best or not, what's your opinion? Do you think Mineral King should have been developed or not? I mean, we really, 
ask, you can ask us on a different day and we'll have a different answer. Different answer. But, yeah. But I mean, as Disney people, of course, we would have been interested to see what it looks like, but we also got to know a lot of the people who care so much about Mineral King. And, and what we really tried to strive for while writing this is to really switch points of view. So we really want, again, people to kind of decide for themselves. We try to present both sides equal weight and we're looking forward to hearing really what people, what people say about it and what they think. Yeah. You did a great job staying neutral. I don't think I could have done that. So kudos (laughs) to you for that, but wow. Catherine, Greg, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful read. We're so glad we got to interview you. Ed, what is coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we are going to talk with Matthew Kerbis, the subscription attorney. Curiously, as I was getting set up for this, he has a connection to the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System based out of, you guessed it, the University of Denver. This whole show is full of uh, coincidences. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, I'm looking forward to that, Ed. See you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage building experiences that connect, remove friction and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 PM Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.